This is a HeadGum Podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a Miracle Made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver-infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not, like, getting too hot or too cold or whatever. You know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle Made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it, like, doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made. Come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today. You'll get 40% off. Use the promo code FakeTheNation. Go to TryMiracle.com slash FakeTheNation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to TryMiracle.com slash FakeTheNation and use the code FakeTheNation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's TryMiracle.com slash FakeTheNation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Fake the Nation, episode 258. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about politics, and where we marvel at ranked choice voting in New York City. Oh my God, I am your host, Nagin Farsad, and we made it through one round of votes. Now we're going to go through the rest of the ranks. It's going to take some time. And you know what? No one said democracy didn't need to take a little time. Sometimes democracy takes just a little time. It's okay. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about the Breathe Act and some other GOP shenanigans. And we'll also talk about how many friends you can reasonably have. All right. Today, I'm so excited by this panel. Folks, for the very first time on this show, we have a playwright, a TV and screenwriter. You've seen his work on Law & Order SVU, on American soul on so much more. Um, folks, I've had the pleasure of seeing this guy's work. I've had the pleasure of being uh, side by side with him at a writer's retreat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He is the brilliant Azel Williams. Hey, Azel, how's it going? Thank you for having me. It's going very well out here in uh, L.A. where we just pick one terrible Democrat to be our mayor, and that's it. That's how we roll. We don't do it twice. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Eventually, you two who shall rank your votes, uh, I hope, you know. Uh, we also have joining us for the first, for the not the first time, the multiple time. Um, oh my God, 
This guy, he's so great. He's so funny. He's host of the Smartest Man in the World podcast. He's going to be on the road with Whose Line Is It Anyway in the fall. And also, Whose Line Is It Anyway returns to the CW on Saturdays. Uh, It is, folks, none other than Greg Proops. Hey, Greg. Hi, everybody. Oh, my gosh. Such a great, such a great panel. All right, (laughs) let's get into it with topic number one. So I wanted to talk about police reform at the federal level. There's a couple of bills out there which may not have the political heft to pass Congress, but let's see what's on the table anyways. Um, There's two main acts going on. There's the BREATHE Act, which is like the more progressive option. It calls for the closure of federal agencies like um, ICE, uh, like the DEA. Um, It calls for divesting federal funds allocated to uh, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It um, includes federal grants to local governments to invest in public safety alternatives um, and pushing an end to mandatory minimum sentencing. Um, There's the Justice in Policing Act, which this bill has actually passed the House. It centers on curbing qualified immunity protections for police officers. It makes it easier to prosecute police officers at the federal level and establishes a national registry of police misconduct. I guess my question for both of you, also now as we are a year after uh, George Floyd, Mm. is um, which of these bills seem appealing to you? Uh, and also neither and both are also an option. And um, kind of where where do you think we are with this? Like, what is the likelihood? Uh, Zell, we'll start with you. Uh, yeah, no, like I have never, ever in the past year or before ever thought any of these bills would ever get through. And I, I say this because, like, uh, last year here in L.A., you know, it became widely known that we spend about $2 billion every year on the police alone. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I was saying before about our our uh, our, our, our mayor, uh, you know, he, he does kind of seem to be very good at, like, um, placating people, like saying, like, oh, yeah, I'll do, I'll do, I'll make the changes, that's fine. And then we kind of step back and we forget about it. And then all of a sudden city council's like, oh, well, you know, they just had to get that money back because you know, they have to deal with the homeless problem. And then they complain about dealing with the homeless problem. When you say things like, you know, well, let's take some of this money and get some more intervention counselors, some more social workers. They're like, whoa, 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 why do you want to take our money? And that's LA. (laughs) And that's like, Mm -hmm. that's a city where it's like, you you have to be a Democrat to run here. And because our Congress and our Senate is basically full of, a bunch of Eric Garcetti's in some way, shape or form who are going to right. like say what they need to say in order to keep the power power structure in place, but are also going to try to look like they're going to do some progressive reform. I never really thought any of these bills would change. Like it's in, it's insane to me that like we're talking about chokeholds as if the only reason police are choking people out is that they don't know that it's against the law. Like they right. all know it's against the law. <laughs> right, 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 right. You don't see these cops like pulling over like your grandma and being like, ma'am, ma'am, quiet, quiet, quiet. You don't, it doesn't happen. And like they're making this choice to um, to do it. So all of the reforms are kind of like these little piecemeal things that are the weakest sign of our society actually trying to control the arm of, of our society, of the government. 
and utterly, utterly failing. So I don't, I don't know. I just never really had hope that it would pass. I do, I do think something does need to happen because just frankly, as a society, we probably do want to show the rest of the world that our local law enforcement isn't just allowed to murder people if they choose to, but we haven't done that yet. So, uh, Greg, where are you at with this? First of all, uh, the idea that uh, the cops are some benign organization that are here to look after us is a kind of an absurd notion to begin with when mm. uh, that's really never been the purpose of the police. And they've been given way too much leeway in terms of what their bailiwick is. They have to look after homeless people. They have to tear down homeless encampments. They have to do all these things that, one, they're not psychologically prepared to do, nor are they even trained to do, nor should they have any hand in that at all. Mm -hmm. um, like he said, LA, moving LA in one direction or another is like turning a giant oil tanker. We have 10 yes. million people here. We're way too many cities. Um, there's mm -hmm. way too many entities within the city. The, right now here, we have the sheriff's department and the police department fighting with each other over who can be the bigger Nazis. So we're yeah. we're having kind of an issue here in terms of like, We've overfunded these things for a million years. We've put in these people who, <clears throat> excuse me, support, openly support white supremacy within the ranks of the departments. So to, to file all this down and get it changed literally is going to take, I think, several administrations. There's no changing it all at once. Having said that, I never try to look at the negatives because I think... In, in the last year since the police rioted. I mean, I feel like you, you did a good job of laying out the negatives just now, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he doesn't look at them, but they're so blatant. But, well, but right. They're, they're, like, right. They're there, but he's not looking. Okay. Like, like Raul, Raul Peck says, we're looking for truth when we should be looking for meaning. Like, we all mm. know the truth. The truth is the police and the sheriffs are a paramilitary force. One of their main jobs is to uh, make sure that everyone in low-income communities is terrorized. So there's, there's that truth. What is the meaning of this? The meaning is uh, that uh, uh, within the last year, since we saw the police rioted right here where I live uh, uh, on May 26th, uh, they set fire to their cars. They pretended Antifa did it or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of performative police anger over the last year. And that's what the whole summer was about last year. The fact that there's two giant bills in front of the house is the most promising thing that's happened literally in 50 years. The idea that mm. it got so bad, white people acknowledged it got bad. And when you yes. get to that place where the general population of white people has to acknowledge that something's bad, now we're back to the 60s. Now we're back to where people actually, they weren't happy about it then either, but they're acknowledging mm. it. And so I'd like to push forward that. And let's look at something else. The other day, Kamala Harris had a meeting, and this is a small tangent, and I'll let you get controlled the show again, Nadine. Uh, had a, <laughs> a congressional women in Con uh, mm -hmm. Senate dinner. And there were 24 women there and a couple missing. That's half the Senate. That, that, that mm. never happened when I was young. We didn't have black vice presidents that were women when I was young. We didn't have 25 women senators when I was young. So I try to look at the big, big, big picture of America as the slow moving iceberg that it is and say, that's progress. However incremental yeah. it is, however much it doesn't affect your daily life, it really does affect your daily life. Because as you said at the top, uh, Nagin, democracy is the long, boring shitty process only autocracies move quickly <laughs> because autocracies don't need law True. they don't need law yeah 
Right. Um, no, I, I like that. I like that, uh, that that reminder that there were no black vice presidents. Uh, there were no black vice presidents when I was young either. So mm-hmm. I think that is a really good no uh, reminder to all of us. Mm-hmm. And no women and no women. Um, I, I want to, you know, I think that I think you're absolutely right. The fact that there are two bills and that one of them even passed the House and that they're even in bipartisan talks in the Senate of how to get the Justice and Policing Act, get something in the Senate. Um, I think that is progress. That's a, and that's a really great way of looking at it. Um, I also think that, you know, there's sort of two, I would like to think of things in two tracks. I mean, I have a maybe 3% softer view of the police. Um, having actually now been to multiple like precinct, you know, meetings and stuff like that um, and being more involved in just like how policing operates in my actual neighborhood. Um, I, uh, and, and knowing more police officers than I ever did before, like literally starting last summer, I was like, I need to know more. Who are these people? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's kind of happened for me, which is, soften my view a little bit just in terms of the, you know, um, neighborhood coordinating officers, what their goals are, how they're trying to do it, how they're trying to meet people. Um, There is more of a community policing than I think I'd ever given them credit for. And, um, and, and, and maybe that's also a a new, newer thing. Um, So, so I, again, I have like a 3% softer view, but Mm. that's not much, right? Because there's still that 97%. So, uh, (laughs) so, uh, but I do think that there's two tracks to look at it on, which is that, which is one, reforming the police and the iceberg and the, just the, the entrenched problems of the police and what we expect of them. And that's more like, will take some administrations will is 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 a five to ten year problem Hmm. Um, and then there's you know there's the shorter term problem of there is actual crime and the pandemic has wrought a higher crime rate Hmm. all across the board in the country so i think like part of you know it's almost it's it's interesting because it was almost like if if the um you know marches of last summer had happened outside of a pandemic, I almost think we would have had one of these bills already. You know what I mean? Hmm. But because the pandemic gave us a higher crime rate, I think it made some of these measures just less popular because people are like, no, I totally get the abstract notion of making all of these reforms, but literally there's more crime. So what Mm. are we going to do about that? So there's the short-term problem. And I kind of wish we could talk to people in a reasonable way of like, there's a short-term problem of crime. Here's what we're going to do. Mm. And there's the long-term problem of reform. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Zell. I, I, I feel you on that. Cause like I, I have been struggling with this myself because my uh, uncle who is more of a father figure to me than an uncle uh, is a retired police detective in Fresno, California. Uh, I love mm-hmm. the man to death. He's been, mm-hmm. he's the deacon of our church, the church I grew up in. The, his father, yeah. my grandfather literally started. <laughs> um, 
And we've had some this real actually hard... that like made me misty eyed just this description of your family. Okay, oh no, I love ahead. him. That's I really love lovely. Sh- yeah. Shout out Uncle Bill. Uh, I love him to death. That being said, we had we we had some kind of com- hard conversations mm. uh, last year because like I grew up in you know Fresno, California. Uh, to tell you how you know, like conservative that place is, it's where Devin Nunes is from. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, <laughs> yeah. um, so a lot of people hiding in bushes. Uh, God, no, it's not. <laughs> but like, that's a Devin. That's a Devin Nunes deep, deep cut I from know, like man, 2017 or something. Man does nothing for us yet. We keep sending the farm. The guys who own the farms actually keep sending him anyway. Yeah. Uh, but like, I I love him to death. But you know, I lived in. I went to school in the college in the Bay Area. I moved out to Chicago after college. I lived in New York for six years. I lived in Philly for six years. And I made some amazing friends who did, who were educators and activists. And they saw collectively the um, use of the police force to like harass their students, harass the communities that they were in. Like, um, I know like, commu- like community policing, there are, like you say, there is there are good cops and you do need to get to know them. But like, it is good to know them. But like, I... I had, you know, we had one of our talks about like, you know, whether or not I believe that the poli- all cops are bastards. And I, I said like, look, not all anybody is bastards. But, you know, if you went out to the if you went out to, to any other country and were like, hey, how good are Americans? They're going to be like a lot of them. A lot of them are probably going to say like, oh, they're not that great. They seem to like to bomb us <laughs> or they're going to say like that. Kind right. of thing. And I feel like I feel like when you look at like police forces, there is that kind of um difficult thing you have to walk where it's like the individuals you know or like your community police force that's one thing but you know as greg was saying even the history of the police force in this country like what they actually are and what they do like whether or not their first job is to like the community or whether their first job is to the landowning community um i feel like it's that that nuance it does get lost in this conversation because so many people who have been under the strain of the police force just need change. And so, yes, they can see them all as bastards. And then there are people like you and me who like, we have cops that we know who are cops in our family who are like good human beings. And it's hard for me to imagine. I can't, it's funny, like seeing my uncle singing in the on a Sunday morning, like Jesus is on the main line. It's hard for me to imagine him being like working somebody over with a billy club. <laughs> so yeah, right. it's hard, like right. It's, right. those two things just don't align. And it's 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 so hard to like have those type of nuanced conversations with people on the other side because you want you want them to understand that like this is what this force is meant for me because whether or not they know my uncles are cop or anything I leave this place I'm a black guy I'm a black guy walking on the street doing whatever I'm doing and that you know that comes with a certain amount of of baggage if a cop pulls me over I always feel terrified when a cop pulls me over um but like if I walk into the if I walk into a precinct with my uncle and you know retired detective you know Andrews says like hey this is my nephew it's a whole different other thing mm-hmm. um uh, and I do I think that that is something we're going to have to get over and 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 I do want to say that like getting back to what Greg said he's absolutely right the fact that we have a conversation in the American public uh, or sorry excuse me at a federal level I should say in America around whether or not we should do this is phenomenal it kind of reminds me about like um, been doing a lot of reading about Thurgood Marshall for a lot of reasons mm. right now. Uh, and people, 
You know, I mean, oh, who isn't? Who you know? You just summer read. <laughs> just like, <laughs> you yeah. just sit on a beach and Be- beach read about read, yeah. Thurgood's <laughs> young days. Um, uh, but you know, he people act like Brown v. Board of Education was something he did, and it's like that was uh, a fifteen-ish year-long journey mm-hmm. that was started by his mentor. wasn't even started by Thurgood. Um, and along the way, a lot of black people were like, hey, why am I giving my NAACP all this money? They keep suing these school districts, <laughs> right? They didn't They didn't see that like this right. was a longer plan. And I hope that this is sort of that. I hope that God willing, by the time your daughter, or if I should be lucky, whatever, have kids or, uh, but like, I do hope that like, by the time they come around, you know, they are, ha- they, it, it's so odd to them to think there was a time we allowed the police to just right. like pepper spray crowds, <laughs> like. Right, yeah. right. right. <laughs> No, I like that. And then, and Greg, close us out here on what should we tell people who say, but there's crime? Hmm. Oh, what well, do we, to, you know, those, sure those scared crime. people who are legitimately, who heard a gunshot, you know what I mean, at the, last week and they're scared. What, what, what are they, what no do we question. tell those people? Oh, there's, listen, we live in Los Angeles and no matter what neighborhood you live in, um, there's murder, you know, mm-hmm. and there's theft and there's break-ins and all that. So I think that we have to come to terms with the, the vernacular and what the, the phrases we're using. Abolish the police is, is not a very accurate thing to say, nor is it really what we want. You don't want the police abolished. We want the police reformed. And so I, I hate to be the white liberal who urges moderation and patience because I think Martin Luther King addressed that a thousand years ago. I'm not. We all want change and we all want immediate change. But... Um, I would say legislation is a really good way to go. And and Thurgood Marshall's an awesome example. His persistence in the face of this, my feeling is always there's too many people working too hard to make things better for us to start sniveling at any point. And that includes internal squabbling in the Democratic Party or whatever you want to call the left, because the other side really is a gigantic fascist outfit. And they're trying to control the narrative at all times. And they're trying to make us look like it's always we're socialists who don't want cops and we want anarchy. And that's not what's going on at all. Justice is is a big part of this. And justice includes how the the law enforcement behaves as well as how we behave. So to speak to crime, it went up because things are crazy. And then that goes back to the whole systemic social thing of there wouldn't be so much crime if people had stuff (laughs) so i I can't even begin to address how do we topple the what you know the 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 paradigm of billionaires and all that but on a basic level um i'm hoping things are gonna the main thing is with having biden and harrison has for better uh, for better i think turn the heat down on having um everything coming from the very, very top of the country at an insane racist level bullhorn every second of the day, which allows us the space to have a discussion that's reasonably intelligent about crime, the cops and everything, as opposed Mm. to just having a sluice of misinformation. Yes. They're still doing it. Oh my God, I can't even imagine this conversation we, the three of us, we would be having if Donnie was still in office. It would be a completely different story. I do feel like calmer talking about it right now. All right, folks, let me know what you think. Um, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed, actually, the optimism that both of you shared. That was... Um, 
that was a very fake of the nation. We're only doing optimism thing that just happened. <laughs> uh, folks, I'm let trying. me know what you think. I'm so curious. In fact, the New York City mayoral election has some interesting things to say about where people are on crime because the main, uh, the leading contender who's who's gotten most of the votes now, which is just like in the low 30%, I think, um, is Eric Adams, who's, who's basically running on a no, like we need to fight crime and mm. not do it, you know, re- with no reductions in police force. So um, so it's interesting. So what do you guys think? Let me know um, or or think about it in your heads and then just send me your thoughts uh, <laughs> through the sky. Mm. It's another way of doing it as opposed to social media. Good vibes. All right. Good vibes are um, the same as radio. That's it for topic number one. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about other things. This HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by Aura Frames. That is right. Uh, from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an Aura Frame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, well. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an Aura Frame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there. And you know what? You can update it with an app. So every time you take a new picture of a sweet little uh, person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A Frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. Headgum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm-hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code HEADGUM at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. Today's show is sponsored by Pros. This is kind of, I feel like, you know, I'm on some sort of Lord of the Rings journey trying to figure out skincare. And I feel like this customized skincare line is really got my name on it. Basically, every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skincare, I tried the skincare just recently, is made to order and it's personalized. It's got a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs, like specifically you. And then the way they do it is you take this great, like in-depth quiz, basically. They analyze over 80 factors for a complete view of your life, your beauty goals, Um, Like I have oily skin that's also dry, which is just a fun little conundrum. I live in New York City. Like we've got these four seasons. My my face gets weird during seasonal shifts. Um, I all of these things I got to kind of talk about in like in answering the questions. Um, The other fun thing was they asked us at the end, like, do you like a creamy type of moisturizer or like a less creamy kind? And I was kind of like, I think like less creamy. And they were like, that's 
fine. Like you can do that, but we think for your skin type, creamier is better. And I never knew that. So I love that there's so much kind of personal information that goes into creating this. I got my stuff in the mail very quickly after I got a wonderful serum. Like I said, this very creamy moisturizer. Um, and this also very just delectably creamy cleanser that just kind of feel like I, I think it's possible that I've been washing my face with just like harsh harshness for like many years because when I saw this cleanser I was like oh is this what it's supposed to feel like it's supposed to feel like a little bit of a delight on my face that's not what I've been doing so I don't know guys and here's the thing you don't have to take my word for it in a third-party double-blind dermatologist supervised controlled clinical study um, which is like the gold standard for research studies Pros prove that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives, which just sort of totally makes sense on a just logical level if you think about it. Just it makes common sense. Pros are so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering my listeners an exclusive trial offer so you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% of your first subscription order at pros.com slash Fake the nation um, will be taken off. That's pros.com slash fake the nation. You get your free consultation and 50% off your one of a kind formulas. Uh, again, that's pros.com slash fake the nation. Go and get your just super personalized, luxurious skincare products and hair care products. That's what I'm going to try next. So pros.com slash fake the nation. We are back and we're ready for topic number two. <laughs> we're going to talk about how many friends you can have. In 1993, an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar said the average person could have a maximum of 150 friends, like actual meaningful relationships. Mm. Um, this number is called Dunbar's number. But now here's the big scandal in the world of friendship studies. Uh, there's a new study. There's a world of friendship studies, first of all, breaking news. <laughs> first of all, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's actual departments. Um, we used and to this call it one drinking. Come- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one comes out of Stockholm. They say that you can actually have a ton more friends if you put <laughs> effort into it. So first, I guess my question is, uh, what do you think of Dunbar's number, 150 people? Do you mm. think it's too low, too high? Where would you rank your own friendship capacities? Uh, Greg, where are you at on this on this on this critical issue. Well, I was looking at the topic before we came on and I it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. It seems like it's completely conditional. If you live in a remote island in Norway, you're never going to have 150 <laughs> friends and if you live in the middle of uh, Mumbai, it might be that you know every goddamn person on the block. So, uh, in any case, uh, I think as you get older in my experience, uh, what I want isn't as is much as more friends as uh, a group of friends that I can depend on and trust that are the core Mm. of your emotional relationships. Because I'm a traveling ham, I know thousands of people in places all over the world. um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of them I'm very friendly with. Are they my friends? Yeah, when I see them, they are. Um, (laughs) Also, we've created a thousand different like conditions of friendship now because for instance, 
I will consider uh, Zell a friend after this. And that if Aww. we see each other, we'll talk and acknowledge that we met each other and that you've met a million people <laughs> over the last year because of, of Zoom and, and all the, you know, how many strangers mm-hmm. have you yeah. met? How many people have you contacted on uh, social media? Da, da, da. So there's all these people I think I know fairly well that I don't think mm-hmm. I've ever spoken a word to. And, and then I do, I do end up, because I travel around doing the podcast and whatnot, meeting them. And they'll go, I'm so-and-so. And I'll go, oh, you're so-and-so from Twitter. Or you're the one who wrote me in my, in my email. <laughs> so we do have mm-hmm. a relationship. So I don't know whether the, the number is as important as the connection. For me, uh, being a comic, the, I always thought the most important thing was to connect with the audience. And then, of course, if they don't get you, to berate them. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's... Audiences love that. You know, I... Like you're, you're in a, this is so, you know, now we're into metaphysics here, but when you're in front of the audience, you are their friend. Uh You're friendly with Uh them. You're presenting yourself. Uh When you're writing for someone, the the writing that they're hearing is your way of communicating with them. And the basic tenet of friendship is communication, right? And trust. Mm. Uh, Mm. So uh, if people trust you to give your opinion in front of them or trust you to tell jokes for an hour in front of them, then they're granting you a certain leeway within that perimeter of friendship and whatnot so but like mm-hmm. i say sometimes i feel like i'm not even friends because we've all been trapped for a year and a half and i start <laughs> to go mad and my own paranoid delusions take over and then my sense of insecurity overwhelms my unbelievably unwarranted sense of confidence mm-hmm. and so that, that's when i pine for friendship and then you know then you'll see a friend or talk uh-huh. to a friend and you'll remember all their horrible shortcomings and all the reasons they annoy you and then you think Wow, yes. I've, I've, I've really got to let that balance out. I've got to be more, I have to, you know, practice more largesse to let people fail in my eyes. And then also, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? Because heaven knows how people see me. I never think about it because I'm that self-centered. But I know that I'm annoying. I know that I'm sarcastic. I know that I'm selfish. I know that I can also be generous and kind, you know, so... Mm. You know. you know what's funny? I, I'm the opposite. I think everyone hates me. And that is something I have paid a lot of therapists a lot of money to help right. me to work out. Uh, and I also love the fact that, like, the people who invented IKEA furniture are like, you should work harder. Um, yeah, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> um, this, this story for me was so... Uh, I love it so much. And I know. I, Zell I hate wrote it so me, much. wrote me like in the middle of the night after having read this. Like, why Why were you so uh, moved by this? Uh, because, again, I have I was raised in a Christian household thinking I'm terrible garbage and Jesus Jesus doesn't love me because of it. And I'm working through a lot of that stuff. But seriously, I I. I have never, I had the opposite thought, which is like, oh, I don't have a lot of close friends, but I'm a product, I'm, I'm an old millennial, so like I'm a product of this time where it's like half the people I know are like online only and half the people I know are like in real life. And then I had to come up with rules. Like I stopped engaging with Twitter because like every time I turned it on, it depressed me. And I came up with this rule of like, if I don't, if I've never physically shook your hand, I'm not gonna follow you on Twitter. That's just a thing I have now. But then I saw <laughs> that this old number was 150 and that made me depressed in a whole other kind of way because I am just trying, I, <laughs> if I had to keep up. Oh my God, I feel like we're just watching. I've been witnessing the unraveling of both of you. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cause like, first of all, Nikki, so you have a little you have a little human 
who probably takes up a lot of your time. And whenever that happens with my friends, I, I've never seen them again. Like I've, yeah. I've ne- I don't see them at all again. And that's, that's just, and it's not like we stop being friends, but it is a question of like, okay, so what kind of friends are we? Like, are we like work friends? Am I like, like I show up at the kids' parties, I guess, and I bring gifts. So like, I the biggest question for me in this story was like, what is a friend to these people? And then he described Ooh. it as like, Someone you would say hi to in an airport. And I was like, this is bullshit. Without, with no way, Zell, you're forgetting the important part of that sentence, which is he described as someone you'd run into in an airport without feeling awkward. Which is no one, which is literally (laughs) no one for me. Like I, I was bringing my dog inside of my building and I ran into the lady who lives across the hall from me. And I was so ashamed and could barely look her in the eye because I don't really know her. Like, are we friends? Like if I saw her in an airport, I would hold my head down and pray to Christ. She did not see me. Um, But like, I I also think that we, we all happen to work in, we all happen to work in an industry, right? That kind of screws up friendships because we all like, you you want to you work with your friends and you don't work with some of your friends and you make things and you think like oh I can get here because I know blah 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 and it's like well that's not really a friendship is that like a work thing um, so like I just I feel like this data for me is questionable in the first place <laughs> I think I think you can totally know a bunch of people um, yeah. I'll be I'll be honest Greg I, I'll tell you I made an ass of not an ass of myself but I was just a nerd boy at comic-con a couple years ago when I met uh, Aisha Tyler uh-huh. uh, and I was we were like at the Fox party and I was like oh my god I love you I love your stand-up blah 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 yeah. and Archie's great blah 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 and like I think now if I ran into her, she'd run away from me. We're not friends <laughs> like that. Um, I'll tell her. Like, that, but that's, Wait, that's okay, what I'm so saying, though. Like, that's is... the world we live in, where friend is right. a friend is like, um, you know, what are you talking about? Like, do I did we grow up together? I, like, and I yeah. think and I think that social media has made, you know, playwrights, artists and comedians of everyone in a, in the world, right? Like because mm. we, because we're used to having these sort of like project based public public relationships right yes yeah um and now because of social media everyone has public relationships right that you know at different scales Mm. um and what i think is really hilarious about listening to both of you talk about this is that i've hung out with both of you socially uh zell we were at a retreat um at vassar at a a writer's thing and and uh, Greg, we were we did um, we were like at a weekend worth of uh, shows in West Virginia, and so I got to hang out with both of you kind of off stage, and you're both incredibly social in very similar ways, <laughs> except for Zell's perception of his himself is so wildly different than Greg's perception <laughs> of himself. So, it, but what's funny is like the actual the manifestation of both of you guys is delightful, hilarious, and great to be around. Like I would describe both of you that way, mm-hmm. and so it's really funny uh, that your 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 reactions to the to this article were so different. Um, and I think like I don't know. I mean. I was, of course, you read the number 150 and you read this ridiculous definition of like someone that you would run into in an airport and not be up. First of all, when I run into anyone, I first think, and this is because I'm a, a woman who learned from a very young age to hate myself. 
I think, what am I wearing? How do I look? Mm. <laughs> I mean, mm. If I run right. into someone unexpectedly, what am I wearing right now? How do I look? Am I wearing lipstick? What is the look? Like I can't, just, people can't just see me be, I don't wake up like this, folks. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so that's my first thought because I'm so, so careful about what people think. So in that sense, running into someone at an airport isn't, isn't it's, it's not that it's awkward or not awkward. It's just fraught with like me and my sense of my outward appearance and my all of the insecurities I have around appearance from Mm -hmm. bred into me as a young little girl who was told to be try and be pretty, you know, and like that's I think the the first thing. And so then you're like, are there 150 people that I could run into like wearing my pajamas and I wouldn't want I mean, definitely (laughs) not. That is you know what I mean? I think right. I think you're hitting on the important thing behind this, which isn't it's not even so much the number, but it's like how how are we call how are we associating people in our lives? I think that you I think the element of gender that we socially train people to like believe in what is because like guys don't we don't we like, you know, cis guys don't like often care like we leave. I am always amazed when I see like like cis couples together. Because I'll, I'll look at them and I'll be like, a woman works so hard to look good. She's wearing like a beautiful summer dress and clearly she's like done makeup and taken a shower. And he rolled out of bed, put on the exact right. same sweatpants <laughs> he wore yesterday and could not give a fuck. And like, that's yes. how we engage in the world. So like, even the genders have a different idea of like what friendship is and how you participate with someone. And yes. it, you know, yeah. it's, it's so, I find, I love the fact that this is such a cliche academic debate because we have people who I can clearly tell no offense scientists they did not have a lot of friends growing up and they're talking talking about like well this is what makes someone cool your friend and it's like if you know that it's like dude no like and and also again I just really want to stress can you honestly say that any one of us wants to actually keep up with 150 mm-hmm. of the people like because i feel like that's okay, a, an important I part do, of friendship too it's like keeping up with right. people <laughs> like, okay i can i just say that my idyllic dream of not have being like just super wealthy and sitting around and not working is that all i do is go and have like lunch and breakfast and dinner dates because i do keep up with 150 people like that's that my mm-hmm. extreme extroverts like dream is mm. that is the, the yes 150 that sounds great i don't know if i have that right now or what but like i i think it would be amazing if i yes. if i did and i would if i could just keep up with them and that's what i would do as a non-working person which goes but, back uh, to to greg's point about like whatever society you grow up in our society is capital so before we before we can even have friends, we got to have the time. So we need the money. That's right, 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 right. right? If yeah, you're working exactly, all day, you exactly. Have friends, Cri- you're busy. Yeah. Well, well I right. love I love what exactly. y'all said too. As well. And I, I, just to address that, because you brought it up, Nagin, I always yeah. dress up in public, and you've been around me. And, you do. And I, yeah, I, you I rarely do. look. I don't look. You look great. And my wife always is really together. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's she, a matter I've, of... Like, I've also hung out with her and she always looks amazing. Oh, no. She's, she wouldn't go out of the house in a baseball cap. I think she would rather, like, you know, jump into a lake. And so... Yes. Uh, on stage, I'm always in a suit and tie. And if you ever see me in public, mm-hmm. I often will have a coat on and, you know, shiny shoes. And, like, I just can't be that guy that 
uh, wears the sweatpants and it looks like a slob. <laughs> and I, I play in front of audiences and sometimes, I think it was Don Rickles who said, someone said people don't dress up anymore. And Don Rickles said, they come to the show in their underwear. And uh, it's like, you know, <laughs> there's that whole thing. Like, like you said, Nagin, the first thing I think of is what was I wearing when someone saw me? You know, right. was my hair yeah. messed up? Was I wearing that horrible check shirt that I should have thrown away? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's, you know, uh, men have let themselves off the hook for literally everything. Their behavior, yes. their dress and all that. So being friends with a man is a completely conditional thing because a lot of men have no boundaries. And they're like, oh, we're friends, but maybe, you know, huh? Right. And you're like, no, gross. And so, so <laughs> women don't really play that as hard as men do. Men are always like, the biggest emotional insult you can do to a man is to put him in the friend zone or whatever. Because now you don't, right. you don't desire him to be inside you or whatever. And it's like, when did we get to that as a measure of, you know? <laughs> that, oh, my God. So you only want to be intimate with me and share secrets in your life and eat together. And that's not enough for me. I... If I don't get everything I want, <laughs> then I'm being relegated to some, you know. I gotta stick it in. I gotta know that you want me to stick it in. It's right? literally the only uh, way. It's the only way I have value. Yeah. That's the only way I can. <laughs> Suddenly we're all actors. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the only oh way actors God. can measure anything. Do you want to or do you not want to? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, let me know if you measure your own self-worth by whether or not people want you to stick it in. Um, <laughs> but also, do you feel like you have 150 meaningful friendships? I don't cool. know. Let me know all of the things that you want to let me know. Just let me know them. All right. Let us move on to topic number three. Let's talk about critical race theory. And we're Let's only talk talking about it. about it, not because I went to graduate school and studied it as a fucking nerd, um, but because it, the, like Tucker Carlson's talking about it, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and um, they're banning the teaching of critical race theory in multiple states, um, which, what does that even mean? Also, uh, when I was in kindergarten, we didn't have critical race theory like mm -mm. period you know what no. i mean uh it was mostly just like the alphabet and stuff like that so i'm curious mm. what exactly they're banning um here's the funny thing i've talked uh, to some friends who just straight up don't even know what critical race theory is uh which is reasonable because maybe that means you didn't go to grad school for African-American studies or sociology, or you didn't go to law school in which this came up as a legal issue. Um, and that's fine. Most of us have not. Mm. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, um, it's basically that racism is not just embedded in people's like personal behavior, um, but also in institutions. So think of, for example, redlining from the 30s or something. Um, redlining was a policy where they would take whole neighborhoods that had black people in them and say, we're not going to lo loan money to those people. Uh, that was a form of, you know, in institutional racism. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, critical race theory addresses stuff like that, where racism is embedded in the actual institutions. Um, yeah. And systems by which we all live our lives. So, folks, why, why, Greg, is it a big deal now? Like, why? What's going on? What happened? I was just, I thought it would be cool if nobody ever talked about this outside of academia. Well, you're absolutely right. It's it's a, a, a theory and, and a, a system of uh, 
knowledge that legal people put together uh, in the 60s and 70s to sort of address this. And what the, what the Republicans have done is they've taken something that they vaguely heard of and they've whipped it into a false flag for their people who don't really read or research. They just know that they don't like things because they're told, like with Tucker Carlson is talking about it, you can be assured of two things, that he hasn't the slightest amount of knowledge uh, of, of what it is particularly, and two, uh, that if he did know what it was, he would still misinterpret it to everyone. Mm. Let's get to the basic, basic bottom line on this. It's not taught in K through 12. And the giant argument that all the uh, Republican houses across the country and Republican governors are freaking out about is that they don't want children to ever be taught that a white person could have a racist impulse. And that somehow the critical race theory impugns all white people and makes us all racist from the get-go. And gosh darn it, that's not fair. And I won't have my kindergartner taught that. As you pointed out, when I was in kindergarten, we were taught that the um, pilgrims invited the Indians to a banquet. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea that it's being taught at any level other yeah. than the highest levels of education is nonsense. So it is just like so many things, like abolish the police, like Antifa, uh, uh, like calling Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization. It is mm. an absolute falsehood. The, they have no more idea what critical race theory is than they have about fornication. They simply <laughs> want to use another red flag to wave in front of their absolutely uh -huh. racist base who voted for 45 and all the down ballot people for the simple fact that they know that they will uphold racism. And so I think that's what they're using it for. It's a media football. They also can count on the mainstream media at all times giving both sides equal weight. Instead of saying mm. um, they're voting for fascism over and over again, they just go, well, the Republicans are very resistant on the voters. <laughs> and then with the critical race thing, they go, Republicans are upset over. So did you hear Governor Ricketts uh, uh, of Nebraska, the one who his main accomplishment is letting people die in meatpacking plants during COVID? Um, and oh, and his brother owning the Cubs. <laughs> yeah. They asked Governor Ricketts why he was so upset about critical race theory, and he gave one of those fabulous Republican answers. He said, socialism? He said, socialism? When was America even vaguely socialist? I mean, other yeah. than, yeah, social security, things like that. I don't know, streetlights. Those mm -hmm. are good things that are socialist. Uh, and he just blathered on. So they don't know what Buzz it words. is. Scary buzzwords. Well, they don't, I mean, yeah. they want school board meetings say... to be disrupted by ugly people is what they want. They right. want school board I mean, meetings to be flooded with other people <laughs> screaming at the top of their voice over shit they know nothing about. But also, I should point out, Del, in terms of those school board meetings, there has been legislation outlawing uh, critical race theory in schools passed mm -hmm. in Idaho, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, and there's proposals in other state houses as well. Uh, and the funny thing to me is, like, what does that even... I mean, what do you understand that to even mean? Exactly. Yeah, no, like, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Because, like, it's funny because, like, I did not study, uh, you know, critical race theory as a topic in college. But, like, I grew up in a black family. <laughs> so, like, um, it's, uh, you know, my grandfather uh, was had your a first, very... So let me guess, your first words as an infant were critical race and theory. <laughs> exactly. Like, we just, that's, that's all you teach black children to say at first. And then, of course, uh, you know... <laughs> And then mama step. and then dad, uh, no, yeah. No, but like it's, it's so, so you know, I, I didn't study it, but I did grow up in the Bay Area. 
And if I correct me, if I might be wrong about this, but I believe critical race studies started at San Francisco State, my uh, my maternal grandfather's alma mater. Uh, and when I got to college and, you know, I started was I was able to take my electives and history and everything. I took African-American studies. So I sort of got a little bit out of there. But it's just like it literally it is literally what the words say. It is a critical look at race in this country. <laughs> and that's as Greg was saying, that is what is terrifying to them. Because if you at all question whether or not America is the greatest, best place that has ever, never, ever done anything wrong, well, then you're a socialist commie who needs to, like, go back to, like, Russia and with your with your Bolshevism. Like, that's, that's literally, it's literally all just buzzwords that they're throwing out. And, oh, by the way, as you say, these laws that they're passing in schools, we're not teaching it to children. <laughs> so, like. Right. Um, so it's dumb. So there's nothing there. It only looks like they're doing something. Like that's what it looks right. like. It's a word. Right. It's a word that Tucker Carlson can say to like throw out to to his his base so that they obsess over like stopping critical race theory. Meanwhile, the rich people aren't going to pay taxes. You're going to pay taxes. Like you, they're not going to help your schools. God forbid. In fact, this is a great way for them to take even more money away from public schools if they want to investigate this. Um, you know, my example of this, and I remember this distinctly because again, I was raised in a very Christian household. So I was forced to go to church and I was not happy about this on Sundays. Mm. But I remember distinctly second grade being taught about manifest destiny. Ah. And like, it was like a record scratched in my brain because I had this white lady telling me <laughs> that like, oh yeah, no, the reason America is coast to coast is because God wanted it that way. Mm. And <laughs> I'm going, I'm being dragged every Sunday at a, at a real church, by the way. I'm talking like 9.30 a.m. to 2 o'clock. I'm talking mm. football oh, hours. Oh, shit. Yeah, football yeah, yeah. on the West Coast, which means that Niners. games start at 10. Niners, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> there you go. Steve Young, baby. That, that was yeah. my era. Um, so, like, I'm hearing this for the first time, and I'm just like, wait, the God I go to every Sunday told a bunch of white people <laughs> that they could have this land just murder the hell out of anybody who mm. was here because he wanted it. And that for me on a personal level, I, rem I, I remember distinctly in my brain being like, this was, it was, it was, all, it was the kind of the first thought of me being questioning both Christianity and questioning both the American mythos. And, you know, I had parents who were telling me about things like uh, my paternal grandfather came from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I knew about the Tulsa riots all of my life. It's not a huge surprise to me. Um, right. That this, this, what this is, is basically they're trying to marginalize thought of people of color. Because if you are white, and if you have grown up in this country, you have this lovely story that you're allowed to tell, which is that your family came from Europe and they had no money and they didn't require any soul, any help whatsoever. And they had three dollars. And all of a sudden they built some wonderful corporation. That is the reason that you now and, the, and your children never have to work, never have to work. And that's fine because that's what God wants it. Prosperity gospel. Lovely. Meanwhile, if you're brown and you're from this country, <laughs> you're you often are telling the story of we did not want to come here or we were forced to come here, or we had like we had to come here literally because it was either this or dying in back where we come from. Mm -hmm. And then we got here and we've struggled and we've kept together and we're alive and every step of the way that we fought to get the little bit that we had, these were the hurdles that were put up for us by the system that this country has in place, whether it be redlining, you know, whether it be like systemic racism and other forms of, of, of life. That's what it is. And that is what is terrifying to them because if you question that, you have to question, well, is it 
right that we have all of this land? Is it right that I that we walk past all these homeless people uh, in this town without really giving a care? Is it okay that I send my I, I am able to afford to send my kids to a school where they will get a very good education? Well, they will have a five person class where they talk about Russian literature. Meanwhile, down the street, they can't afford desk. Mm-hmm. Like that is what critical race theory makes you question. And that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of their audience actually waking up and thinking about that and facing that truth. So, and you know, the thing is though, so this is what, what the, how they're able to rouse fears. And I'm, I'm curious if you could put yourselves in, in the shoes of people who are receiving the Tucker Carlson discourse um, you mean my cousins? They're, you're, you're like, correct. Specifically, your cousins is who I'm referring to. Yes. Um, you know, basically, they're saying that the theory advocates discriminating against white people in order to achieve equality. And and I wonder. So for people. So okay, you're 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 a poor white working class person, and you're hearing about critical race theory, and you're hearing about your privilege. I I under I can see how that would be frustrating because you're like how am I the beneficiary of anything? Mm. I am also poor. Yes. Right? And so Greg like what do you say? You know, to your cousins or this hypothetical, you know, poor white person who doesn't feel like they're the beneficiary of anything. Mm. Well, as they always say, the fish doesn't know that it's surrounded by water. And white people don't know that they're buoyed <laughs> by privilege, even at the poorest level. To get, I've been doing stand up comedy for 174 years. And every time I bring <laughs> up to the white people in the audience that it might be that they already have an advantage from the starting blocks, the anger of white crowds is a, a pretty wild cloud of wrath. They don't like to hear it. They don't like it inferred. They don't like to hear that the police are racist. I remember playing in Kansas City right after Ferguson and talking about cops and whatnot Mm. and saying that I don't remember any young black men ever planning a war against Iraq or I don't remember any young black... You know what I mean? I don't don't really get that young black men are this evil force that are ruining my life. Uh, Mm -hmm. But they went quiet every time and I'd go, to them, certainly you've heard of Ferguson. Right. And they'd all go and hang their heads. They know. They know. They've they've been new. Like Mm. I said, there's what the truth is and there's what we want to derive from the truth. So the most important thing is to always keep dialogue flowing and education and sunlight really are the best disinfectant. Part Mm. of the reason they've run, they've leaned on CRE so hard is when I call it that now or CRT is that, uh, uh, they they lost with the with the George Floyd movement. They lost. All of a sudden, white people were sympathetic, or a bunch more became sympathetic, and that scared mm-hmm. the shit out of them. So they had to think of something that is irrelevant, that's literally irrelevant to everyone's life, uh, that's not an academic, as you say, because it wasn't going to be right. taught to you until you were in school for what fourteen years. So, right. mm-hmm. uh, and that's what they've done, I think. So, mm-hmm. I, I always try to like just. You have to keep things simple for a lot of people because they don't have a lot of information coming into their lives and they often um, don't know how to parse the information they get. They can't think laterally because they haven't been taught to think laterally. They can't think um, empathetically because it hurts them, literally hurts them. As James Baldwin said, they'd have to let go of their pain. 
Yeah. And, Which is ironic because critical race theory would help you learn that. Well, uh, no question. I mean, <laughs> I, I love demonizing someone like uh, 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 the woman who writes as Ida Bay Wells, Hannah, uh, who, who put together the uh, uh, 1619 Project. Which is, if you've read it or looked at it at all, it's magisterial. It's it's a real beautiful recapitulation of history. It's not mm. at all easy, and it's extraordinarily painful and, and horrible. And but it's not that you have to dwell in the painful and horrible every moment. It's that you have to realize it, acknowledge it, and then incorporate it into what you know, and then move on. But it, that's mm. where the crux is, I think. They don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to realize it, and they don't want to move mm. on. And because they know that, you know, I, I'm old, and I don't want to live forever. But I would like to live another 20 years only so I can see how different things are going to be in 20 years. Because yes. you really will have all of the Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnells and all that. Yeah. Uh, they'll be they, you will see the Josh Hollies of the world marginalized because mm. literally demographics are not on their side. And so yeah, I, like this is a flailing I, of the dinosaurs here. It really is. Now, mind you, they have all the money. So that's a bummer. But <laughs> that's probably. Uh, yeah. No, and I can I also add to that? I would always say to them that you cannot talk about critical race theory without talking about critical economic theory. Mm. So if you are broke and white in this country, and it's so funny because I have this book, uh, Battle of Blair Mountain, because all I read is lighthearted rom-coms, apparently. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and it's about a, a, a mine worker strike in, in West Virginia in, like the in 1900s. And it's about literally the, the federal and state government Sending in Pinkertons to crush white people. I guarantee yeah. you white people. Yeah. <laughs> like just all white people. White, white on white crime just cannot stop. Um, and if you are poor and you are white in this country, you should know literally anytime they're talking about critical race theory as a problem, they're trying to get you to not look at the fact that they are screwing you over. That, that you should, you too are as much a victim of this system as the black and brown communities that have been trying to understand how they got there via the study of critical race theory. So you should understand that you can't talk about, like the, in this country, we live in a capitalist society. So when we talk about people having privilege, we're basically talking about you having money, right? Like, and if you are, um, you know, it, there is, if you have the ability to marry within a family without it becoming like a visible thing, i.e. you marry rich, now you're all of a sudden part of a different part of a part of a different group. And that's something that literally can't happen if you look different because your children will also look different. It's that's one of the other, that's one of the elements about critical race that you talk about. But like if you're looking at your society and saying, well, but I can do those things because I am white and like I didn't do anything wrong to cause this problem. You should understand that you got a friend in critical race theory because you're you're all looking at exactly how are you? How is this power being kept from you? How is this privilege being kept from you? And the people who want you angry are probably also the people who want you poor. Like that's always the case. Mm -hmm. And it's it's it is frustrating. <laughs> so like I, to the, to them, I would say. That, it, by the way, is, can that just be the title of your next play or something? The people who want you angry are also the people who want you poor. Well, it's a long one, but I think you could rock it. My uh, next play that's is called brilliant. Diversity, so I don't, really, I don't really fuck around on the titles. So don't worry. If I, uh, uh, but no, I, I think that that is, that is so important to understand when you're having this conversation, that critical race theory. Look, if literally black people woke up tomorrow with the 
with everything flipped, like black people all of a sudden had the wealth of white people in this country and they had the wealth of like the standard of living that black people had. I bet you there would be some dynamic changes in power Mm. (laughs) around here. Um, And it would be so much easier to understand if you could just flip a switch that easily. You can't. So you need to understand that critical race theory is also critical economic theory. And if you are broke and if you don't understand how these things affect you, it's because you're focusing on your whiteness. And if you can't let that go, like in your mind, in some way, you're thinking like, well, but I should be on top because I'm I'm like a white man in this country and blah, blah, blah. And, if, and it doesn't work out for me. And if you're getting angry at poor people <laughs> who like are way overrepresented, uh, people of color are way overrepresented in the poor in this country. Well, then you're, you're focusing on the completely wrong aspect. You're not ro- you, you're not robbing the bank to get rich. You're robbing the poor to stay poor, basically. Um so I think I think that the the thing for them to remember is that they aren't they don't want you looking at them. That's why they're telling you to fear critical race theory. Yeah. Folks, uh, beautiful last words there from Zell. Thank you so much. That's uh, that's brilliant. You guys, that's the end of the show. Thanks so much for joining me. That was a hmm. wonderful discussion. And I would love for the people of Faith the Nation to be able to follow you and all the stuff that you do. Uh, Zell, where do they do that? Oh, you you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, occasionally on Twitch. Like I said, if I don't know you in person, I'm probably not going to follow you, but I throw some stuff out there. Uh, you can find <laughs> uh, at Azel Will. That's where I am. You can find my website, azelwill.com, with more information uh, on my life, including my new play, Diversity, which is going to be part of Ojai Playwrights Conference this summer, August 7th. Go to ojaiplays.org to find out more, and uh, you can have the theater brought to you until Broadway opens up again. And also um, uh, subscribe to the podcast, Inner Cities Oh my podcast. God, yes. Also subscribe to the Inner Cities Podcast, where two black men talk about politics and culture and how we survive with former Fake the Nation uh, guest, uh, Toji Onyabuche. Yeah, and he'll be on again, Toji. Yes, so, and we are, uh, by the way, so we are taking our, speaking of, uh, like, we're taking our mental health break right now. So, like, we'll be back soon, but you can follow and check us check out what we've done thus far. And Greg Proops, where do people find you? Uh, you can find me at Twitter at Greg Proops. I'm on Instagram. At, uh, I think it's G Proop Dog. Uh, I have the podcast. Uh, there's a new one out uh, the other day. Uh, you can get that at gregproops.com. Um, usually I do it with my wife. We'll be recording one this weekend. I'll be back on the road in October with Who's Live Is It Anyway? Uh, Who's Live Anyway show with me, Joel Murray, Ryan Stiles, and Jeff Davis. Uh, that's in October. You can go to who'slive.com. The TV show Who's On Is It Anyway is in its 725th great year. Uh, we started when <laughs> television was powered by steam. Um, Aeschylus wrote the first suggestions for us. And um, so we'll be back, uh, as, as we like to say, some of these jokes are in their 50th great year. And um, that'll be on the CW coming up in autumn. But please, uh, I'll be back on the road again, hopefully as a stand-up comic and improviser in the autumn, because we're going to be super cautious about this. And so gregproofs.com is where it's all happening. I don't really sell a lot of products. Uh, and the podcast is free to download. I have a Patreon page and all that jazz too, if you want to get crazy. <laughs> get crazy, guys. And folks, you know where to find me, but I would really love to thank all the people that make this show a possibility. That's our wonderful producer, Julia Linden, our fantastic sound engineer, Stephanie Aguilar, and all of the great, beautiful people at HeadGum that make this show possible. Our theme music was written by Gabby Alter. And as always, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts because it really does help people find the show. Email us at fakethenationaheadgum.com. Uh, join me on Patreon for bonus content and so much more. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash 
Farsad. And otherwise, we'll be back in your earballs next week. That was a headgum podcast. <laughs>